Well, uh, the first question I've got for you is this. Can or was Jesus Christ capable of asking a daft question? Well, his disciples evidently thought so. Was he capable of proposing something equally daft? Well, the people in this account clearly thought so, and more of that in a moment. And I suppose if they thought Jesus could say something daft, do we occasionally have the tendency to think he said something slightly daft? And I have a daft question for us this morning, which if you listen well, we'll answer later on. Who leapfrogs the disciples? Who leapfrogs the disciples? Now, Mark is interesting in his whole approach when he writes because he often sandwiches one story inside another. This is a classic, uh, but earlier on in Mark 3, we have a story, an account of Jesus' family thinking that Jesus is going barking mad and they're trying to extricate him from public ministry. And sandwiched in the middle of that is an account in Mark 3 of an exorcism, of somebody being set free of an evil spirit. Mark uses the same device again in chapter 6, where he sandwiches the sending out of the twelve with, uh, in the middle, the account of John the Baptist's death. And then he resumes and he picks up the story of the sending out of the twelve. And it's, it's something he does to make a point, I think, to us, that this is really worth listening to, that there's something going on here, and sometimes it's about a contrast in emotions or attitudes at play. And in these two characters, we see some very different features. We see they're very different in status. Jairus is a synagogue uh, leader. He's not an ordained person, but he's, he's an official. He's uh, a top man, a bit like a mayor, I suppose, in terms of his status. And we know his name. He's a bloke, so he has status in a society where men were fated more than women. He was publicly recognised. She wasn't. She's just a woman in the crowd, and yet her story endures. And here we are, a couple of thousand years later, reading about her. But also what's interesting to me is that Jesus ministers to them slightly differently. He meets them at their specific point of need and he reaches into that setting. And I think that is something that gives me hope. Uh, Jesus doesn't deal with us as if we're all sort of uh, sausages off a sausage machine, all all the same size and shape. We're not. Uh, We come with different backgrounds, different emotions, different uh, experiences of life. And he meets us precisely at that point of need. Now, this synagogue official comes and he throws himself on Jesus' mercy in verses 22 to 23. Now, as a layman, he had a big place in synagogue life. Uh, He was well-respected, and actually he took a big risk on account of his daughter in doing this. He stakes his reputation on throwing himself before this emerging rabbi, who's slightly untested, considered by some slightly wacky, And the whole account is rich with uh, Jewish touches and Aramaic touches. The fact of Jesus laying hands, uh, in fact, for healing, that was a a Jewish way of doing things, but the Jews typically didn't do that when they were praying for healing. 
They did it for typically a sign of blessing or a sign of uh, agreeing something. They didn't use it for healing. And then we get the, the Aramaic touch. And you'll recall that uh, the common tongue in the Persian Empire after about sort of um, 550 BC was Aramaic. It was a Semite language. It sort of shared a lot in common uh, with Hebrew, but it wasn't quite the same. And it was the language, of course, that Jesus himself uses. And when Jesus later on says, Talitha kum, little girl, get up, he's using the common language. It's a bit like English is the lingua franca, if you like, of the commercial world. So Aramaic was the lingua franca of the Persian Empire. Uh, and all that part of life in the Near East. Now this is tantalising stuff for the crowds because uh, they've they've seen him emerge in ministry, they've seen the family try and get him back, they've seen him exorcising demons out of people, and now he has this challenge from the synagogue official. Is Jesus big enough to cope? And as that story starts to get going, enter stage left, this unnamed woman. This unnamed woman. She's uh, impoverished, probably, we can infer, through the amount of money she's spent on doctors. Now, it's very interesting. Any doctors here? No, that's all right. I, I am profoundly grateful to the medical profession. And if anybody's listening to this later on, I have great respect for doctors, including friends of mine who are doctors. Luke, when he gives his account, cuts out the fact that she's impoverished through the amount she's spent on doctors. What was Luke's occupation? A doctor, yeah. So Luke's account is slightly trimmed. He feels a bit queasy about sort of uh, pulling the rug from his own people. Mark was not a doctor. He's got no qualms at all saying, actually, this woman's poor because she's been fleeced. But her other problem, of course, is that we know from the book of Leviticus uh, that a woman with an issue of blood, menstrual cycle, having a period, is regarded as ritually unclean. And, of course, that entailed all sorts of things that needed to be done afterwards to be ritually uh, clean again. But why does she touch his garment? Why does she think, if I can just touch his garment, I'll be made whole? In the ancient Near East, there was a feeling that actually clothing worn by an individual contained, if you like, the essence of the person. So in her mind, touching his garment was exactly the same as touching his very self. And we see a little bit of that in the book of Acts. Do you remember where uh, Paul sends strips of cloth and... uh, He's prayed over them, and people are made well. That account is in Acts 19. Napkins and scarves touched by Paul are used in healing. And Jane and I would bear witness to that. We uh, were party to a situation, what, 12 years or more, of a two-year-old who had glue ear. And his parents were asking for prayer, and a hanky was prayed over, was sent through the post, so healing via the Royal Mail... This hanky was placed under the child's pillow uh, and within a week or so, he was completely healed. That young man's now, what, 16? So actually it makes it 14 years ago. Um, So that there is something uh, at work there that we don't quite understand. 
Now, that woman is different from Jairus, but she's the same in this respect, that she had a need, and she'd also heard things about Jesus. Verse 27. Clearly, Jairus has heard things about Jesus. That's what gives him faith to come and try and get the daughter healed. But she's heard things too. And she sees Jesus as being instrumental in bringing healing to her, or even salvation. The Greek uh, word sothosomai can mean uh, he, healed or to be saved. But she differs from Jairus in this respect, that she experiences two stages in her understanding of who Jesus is. First of all, she sees him solely as the, ability, the person who's got the ability to make her well from her physical ailment. And so she reaches out and touches him. Now the touch is felt by Jesus, and stand by, this is the first daft question according to his disciples, because Jesus says, when he feels the power go out of him, who touched me? And his disciples saying, you've got to be joking. I mean, it's rather like um, the jostle, if I go and see extra chiefs play, you know, it's a very friendly jostle on the way out as we all crowd out. But actually, you know, anybody could touch me. It's the same, you know, you pour out of the cricket match. And I was there when uh, we, we thrashed Worcestershire at Taunton the other, other Friday. That was great. But again, as we poured out the ground, uh, you know, I was probably touched and jostled very nicely by about, you know, 30 or 40 people because we're just squishing out. And it's that same sort of situation. But Jesus feels the power go from him. And he says, who's responsible? And this woman actually steps forward. And the the scripture says, uh, she tells Jesus the whole truth. So she goes from physical healing. And then the very next part we read, depending which version you've got, he says, um, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So she comes for physical healing and she goes away with a second blessing, which is that of the Lord's peace. Now let's just recall the wider backdrop to this story. Jesus' family think he's balmy. Uh, His his disciples only seem to be half getting the story. You recall back um, in Mark 4, Jesus chides them for their lack of faith. And yet this woman, we don't know her name, inconsequential, has now been praised by Jesus for having faith. She's come to him for a need, has had her need met, She's confessed her what she's done, and she's given peace. She spiritually leapfrogs the disciples in terms of her understanding of faith and acting on it. So the woman disappears from the story. We've dealt with the middle bit of the sandwich, and we return to the story which Mark began with, Jairus' daughter. So this throng continues... And uh, in contrast to the woman who had a lot of faith, we get the reaction of those who come to Jairus and say, basically, chum, don't bother coming any further because your daughter's dead. And uh, you can imagine the thoughts going in Jairus' mind. What if, what if Jesus hadn't spent time with that woman? Would he have got home just in time? All sorts of emotions. We don't know. It's not covered in the scripture. But uh, Jesus isn't phased by the news of the daughter's death. He says, we're going on. 
Jesus has a sense. He knows that he can deliver healing and more to this girl who's ostensibly dead. And maybe to us today, the Lord says, trust him and not the circumstances. This looked desperately difficult. The girl's dead. She's gone. And Jesus says, no, press on. And he says, don't fear, but believe. And the whole tense of that is keep on believing, don't be fearing. Come on, let's go on. And so they go on. And a whole crowd goes in. But at the very last moment, he ushers all of them out except mum and dad and Peter, James and John. And Jesus' pattern of doing that we see in other places in the gospel. Mount of Transfiguration and in Gethsemane where he, he doesn't, he's not into having big crowds adulating him for the wrong reason. Sure, huge crowds followed him for his ministry but Jesus wasn't into having a big crowd giving him undue praise. He just wanted to get on with what needed to be got on with. And so... He addresses the girl, Talitha Kum, little girl, get up. And she wakes up. And Jesus' response is very earthy. He says, can't have something to eat. It's great, isn't it? You know, we try and make it all so spiritual. And it's just meeting a need. Yeah, she's dead. She needs feeding. Go on, give give her some food. Now, the challenge for us, I think, is what do we make of this story? You know, here we are, postmodern, 21st century Christians, uh, very rational beings, because that's the way we've been trained through our schooling. What do we make of a story like this? Is this really locked for us two centuries ago? Or is the same Jesus capable today? I mean really capable of doing this. I would say yes. And the evidence of uh, the church worldwide, if you read Patrick Johnson's book, The Future of the Global Church, it's a fantastic piece of research. The bloke who wrote Operation World, that prayer guide, Um, He published it in about 2011. The churches which are growing in the world are those that see signs and wonders, that see healings. They're the only churches which are growing by people coming to faith. There are other denominations which are growing by people transferring into them who are already Christians, but the only churches which are growing and experiencing, uh, are those experiencing miracles. Now what is lovely about this is that um, there was still unbelief. And Jesus limits the effects of this miracle by encouraging his disciples to keep quiet about it in verse 43. But that doesn't quite happen, does it? He doesn't want miracle chasers. He wants disciples. And I want to read you something very briefly from a former Archbishop of York called Stuart Blanche. He says... This account isn't the result of a fevered imagination. The accounts are restrained, but with vivid circumstantial detail. And we shouldn't be surprised. If God is in Christ, if the maker of the universe is in Jesus, and Jesus has left the Holy Spirit as a deposit of what is to come, then really we shouldn't be surprised when we see healings. I've seen healings. I haven't seen as many as I would like. But that won't stop me praying. And as we move towards, and then four implications, I think, for us today from this account. First of all, what does having faith mean? 
Well, parables, miracles, exorcisms, you can see those, but you don't necessarily have faith. Religious education and religious background, they don't equate to faith. Family ties don't equate to faith. People in deep need and in desperate situations find faith in a variety of ways. This woman's experience was different from Jairus. True faith is faith that risks our very selves in following Jesus. Jairus could have been ostracized from the religious community by putting his trust in Jesus. What is the Lord saying to each of us this morning in terms of putting our reputation on the line for him? Maybe it's a situation at work. Maybe it's a family situation where you've kept silent for a long, long time. Uh, Maybe it's uh, a situation in village amongst friends and you've been praying the Lord for an opportunity to share Jesus and after 17, 18, 20 years you feel, Lord, where are we going? And maybe the time the Lord is saying, step out, I'm bigger than the circumstances, you're not going to blow it, maybe. Secondly, the whole nature of Jesus' ministry here, it's triumphant but it's not triumphalistic. It's not showy. It hasn't got all the worst excesses that we see of sort of American televangelists, you know, bells and whistles and drum rolls. Jesus just gets on with it. In fact, as we've already seen in verse 43, he's not interested in people bigging him up over it. He's just delighted that he's brought a taste of the kingdom to two desperate people, physical healing and a resurrection from the dead. And the third thing maybe for us in terms of a gentle challenge is that the Lord reminds us that we are engaged in a battle, uh, the power of love against the power of evil. And uh, we are entrusted as his disciples to continue that battle. Now for some of us it will mean getting involved in issues of social justice. It will mean being champions for, for fair trade. It will be, it mean being a street pastor. It will mean being involved in Christians Against Poverty. It could be a, a number of things. For others of us, it will be perhaps uh, what we regard as, quite wrongly, more spiritual things like praying for the sick. The first ministries I've just described are just as spiritual because they're spirit-enabled. But it might be that you're being called to step out and to exercise uh, discern. Uh, maybe where the Lord's given a gift of healing. But let's not forget that behind uh, suffering, behind sickness, in one way or the other, are the powers of darkness, the powers that seek to rob, the powers that seek to disrupt. Oh, you've got one. That's all right. Well, I'll join you in a class. That's all right. Um, and so we as believers are called to do battle in prayer. And to see people set free. Holy Jesus' ministry is about setting captives free. The blind given sight and so on. And I want to just do a very quick flit into the Old Testament. 2 Kings 5. The story of Naaman. Story of Naaman. Can anybody give me a 30 second potted history? Right, okay. Naaman, he's an army commander. He belongs to the king of Aram. Uh, And he's got a disease. And they hear that there is a prophet called Elisha. And uh, there's a suggestion by this uh, Hebrew slave who's associated with uh, Naaman that he goes to see Elisha. And Elisha 
will tell him what to do to be healed. Well, he goes to see Elisha, and this is, I mean, this is like a major general. It's like a Richard Dannett figure, you know. He's, he's a top bod. And uh, Elisha says to him, oh, go down there. He says, the River Jordan, go and, go and bathe yourself a few times down there, and, and you'll come out, and you'll be absolutely fine. And you can imagine this chap, you know, he's major general, and uh, he's a very important bloke, and he says, oh, you must be joking. I'm, I'm a pretty important bloke. I'm not going to that river. In fact, the country I come from has got spiffing rivers. And um, he, he actually says that. In a, not in that tone, of course. <laughs> and um, so he comes out and he, I, he, he says to his companions, that bloke's having a laugh. He told me to go and wash in that grubby old river. Anyway, the friends say, well, actually, you know, this is top man. Um, Elisha's a pretty good bloke. Go and do it. So in the end, he relents, of course. He goes down to the waters, he comes out of the waters, he's healed. So what's the purpose of that story in this context? It's just to reinforce the point. Sometimes we will be asked as disciples of Jesus to do something that appears extraordinary, extraordinarily silly, or both. Uh, but actually, if the Lord is prompting us, let's go for it. Let's go and see his kingdom revealed. It's not going to be revealed by us waiting around, hanging around, wringing our hands, doing nothing. And finally, I would be doing you a disservice this morning if I didn't consider that hoary old chestnut, why doesn't God always heal? I've got the answer. I don't know. I really don't know. I think part of it may be to do with this. If you think of the grand sweep of the Bible story, there's only four things to remember. Creation, fall, where Adam and Eve screw up, Go through the timeline, go through the timeline, go through the timeline. Redemption, ministry of Jesus. And then consummation, when Christ will take all things to himself. At the minute, we live between the time of redemption and the time of consummation. We live in kingdom times. The kingdom is fully here, but it's also not quite fully here. And I just wonder sometimes when we're praying, we do see healings because of what Christ has achieved in his victory on the cross and his spilt blood. And yet sometimes we don't quite, because not all we, things aren't fully consummated yet. That's only Taylor's working hypothesis. It may be heresy, so be careful. Sometimes it might be that the Lord grants an inner healing. And actually, inner healings are super. You know, we've, we've lost a friend, haven't we, in the last 10 days, a great man of God, you know, brought to the Lord in his 40s and then went on to have an extraordinary ministry of uh, helping renewal across the churches and um, died of cancer 10 days ago. Um, uh, but the Lord gave him a remarkable inner healing and peace. That didn't stop us praying for his uh, healing. And it won't stop me my experience is this. I have prayed for people with a certain degree of assurance and I have seen them healed. I have prayed for other people with the same degree of assurance and seen them not healed. Conversely, I have prayed for people out of a sense of duty, feeling absolutely nothing, and they have been healed. And I have again prayed for people with that sense of duty and they haven't been. I don't know. But it's not going to stop me. I pray for the dead to rise. I haven't seen any rise yet. But I have seen some people healed. And I have experienced healing. Let me tell you one story. Our old church in Norfolk, 
I, I badly damaged a leg, and the doctor said it would be better if I'd broken it because it would have healed more quickly. And so I was hobbling. Anyway, after a communion service, Gordon, uh, our minister, uh, had about half a dozen people up there praying, and one of them was a little a veterinary student. He was, I say little because he was short. Tom, Tom Steggles. And uh, it, we all went up in line, and Tom asked me what my prayer was for, and I said, well, it's, it's this. You probably saw me hopping up. I mean, he'd, he'd seen me hopping around church for the last few uh, weeks. It had gone on for about nine weeks. And very simply, Tom just put his hand on my shoulder, on my head, you know, no bells and whistles, no crashes of light, and I was healed. And I walked back down, and I think it was, was it my right leg or my left? I can't remember. Anyway, whichever it was, I hopped back down the aisle, and it was just so good. And I thought, God, he's good, isn't he? So I've been on the receiving end of it. And um, I suppose the bottom line for us all is, uh, do we want to share in that ministry which Jesus has commissioned us to Uh, we read at the back end of Matthew and and slightly more in that longer bit at the back end of of Mark's gospel of the sorts of ministry which he expects us to get up to it's scary stuff because it's pushing us beyond our comfort zone and it's pushing us to a place where our reputations could be absolutely shot to bits but this is about giving God the glory it's about seeing his liberty come it's about seeing his physical and mental healing uh, being brought to all people